Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're very welcome to another episode of the Scaling Your Business podcast. For this episode, we have the pleasure to be joined by Charlie Butler, the co-founder of Bounce Insights. Charlie is a graduate of Trinity College. He's been listed as the Sunday Independence 30 under 30 for entrepreneurs and a Trinity Business Student of the Year finalist in 2020. Charlie, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Delighted to have you. Three main focuses or areas that we're going to focus on over the next 30, 35 minutes. First area is just getting to know you. So not that long, but I believe if I've done my research correct, you grew up in Rathmines. Yep. What was life like growing up there? Any favorite standout memories of your time growing up? Well, I kind of always joke about how my whole life has been on one stretch of road. <laughs> um, I joke about that. I went to school in Rat Mines in St. Mary's, um, lucky enough to go to university in Trinity. And my cycle, I'd say I've done thousands and thousands of times, uh, which is straight down Rat Mines Road, down Pier Street into Trinity. And when I was in Mary's, I stopped a bit earlier, but it's the same cycle that I did every day. Um, it may sound boring and monotonous, but my experiences have been phenomenal from where I grew up. I had an incredible family. Uh, role models came from parents, both of them um, entrepreneurial in their own right. Uh, I'm the youngest of three older siblings, the youngest of four, um, all doing completely different career paths. Um, parents were amazing. School was great foundation. Had a very challenging time in school, particularly in secondary school, which I wouldn't change at all. Uh, a mix of physical injury, mental health battles that I think sculpted a lot of my probably proactive attitude and perhaps bizarre behavior when I was in university and being so keen to do something. Um, but both my experience in Rap Minds, where I lived, incredibly privileged and had a great upbringing. And I think any of the, cha- any of the challenges I did face um, I look back on quite fondly because I think it sculpted quite a good character out of it. And then university for me, I had amazing friends, great resources, just had an amazing time. And I'm only graduated a year. I'm speaking like I'm, uh, <laughs> I've graduated quite a while, but uh, no, really fond memories throughout. I love Rathmines. A friend of mine works uh, in Rathmines and I'm moving to Knockline soon. So we meet up regularly. I think it's called Smith's is the pub. Yeah. Smith's yeah. is Ranala, so Smith's, Smith's is Ranala, which uh, Ranala, Rathgar, at Mines are kind of, my girlfriend always jokes that like they're basically the same place if you're not from there, because um, it's just oil. Well, there's evidence, I've just messed up. <laughs> yeah, so but Ranala, Smith's is great, great boozer in Ranala. Um, Rat Mines, we always say is kind of like the uh, the struggling brother um, of Ranala. Ranala kind of takes the the biscuit for the kind of buzz of the place, but Rat Mines is a, is a cracking area, and uh, an eclectic mix of people that are, uh, I like to say that I'm part of. <laughs> Before we move on, one question I like to ask guests is they can usually pinpoint um, one, two, three or four people in their uh, early days who've contributed to the success of a person they've become today, whether it's a, an acquaintance, a friend, a, a school teacher, a, a parent. That Does anyone spring to mind for you? I know you mentioned both your parents being entrepreneurs. Mm. Yeah, I think there's there was incredibly, it perhaps came later than what many of your guests would have answered to this. Um, my dad probably being the primary early 
driver of it. We he's from Donegal and we have a house, house up there which I would have spent a lot of my summers in and a lot of my summers when I was it was just me because my siblings were older so a lot of them would have been in college or traveling um, mm-hmm. and I have a definitive memory of that three hour three and a half hour journey to Donegal with my dad and just listening to him talking about his stories and his challenges what's going on and for better or for worse was remarkably transparent in all the shit that was going on whether it be recession style things you know people like lawsuits it's there uh, people screwing them over all that sort of stuff right through to all the good stuff and I was fascinated by it from an early age and I had this weird thing as well with him whereby my uh, brother above me is an actor brother above him is an architect and my mom was an architect and then my sister who was the eldest was complete brain box and uh doing she's a doctor in psychology now but no one went into the business world and my dad was in the business world and I think being the youngest, I always strove to try and impress him, make him proud, get into that world. So definitely a really pivotal force in what I wanted to do. And then I would say the second and huge driver of my values and what I strive to be like as a manager, as a friend, and as a person in general was when Brezzy came into school. So when I was in school, Niall Bresen came in and gave a talk on his story, mental health, um, role models was a, a big thing that he spoke about and it was the first time I ever heard the word mental health and I think I was 18 um, and I, because of those challenges that I had in school even though I, he spoke for 40 minutes I met him one other time at Electric Picnic and um, his influence that he had on my life was phenomenal he still is a role model of mine I still haven't met him in, in quite some time but almost every decision I made after hearing that talk I don't think Tribe would have happened without him I don't think Bounce would have been as successful if it wasn't without him. So it's interesting. One role model is like literally my parent who, and both my mom and dad. But then the other one was kind of a light touch influence, I suppose, which I can't quite articulate the impact that that talk had on me, both as a person and then both in my now career. I'm sure he'd love to hear that. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I've, I, he probably has heard. He's I name drop him on multiple podcasts and... You know, like because of COVID or whatever reasons, I've never had a, there hasn't been as many events that, to kind mm. of have the conversation with him. But um, yeah, he's a, he's a phenomenal person. And I think it's, when you hear about mental health now, it's, it seems very common. There's a lot of podcasts, there's a lot of people talking about it. But when I was 18, which was five years ago, I'd never heard the word. I was a grown adult and never heard the word. So for him, it was just so formative in his articulation of emotion and, this idea of like a six foot four ex Leinster rugby player musician, cool. You know, I was I was an immature, you know, egotistical, like like teenage boy. I didn't know mm. anything about myself. So his influence was huge because it was like, oh, you can be, you can look like him and still suffer. You can you know be externally powerful, and you know vulnerability is a power. I thought that was just incredible. So that was. Probably an elongated answer, but um, no, two, two core influences. I love that you're talking that because I remember listening to a talk of his before where he was talking about he'd run it like uh, through Mullingar at like 3am to escape and he labelled that friend in his head. I think it was called Jeffrey. I'm, I'm Jeffrey, yeah. um, But through recent years, and chat, you're probably guest number like 115 on this podcast, a fair few entrepreneurs openly talk about how they uh, chat weekly with a... With, with a therapist myself included you don't mm. have to be broken it just it, it helps to have that 50 minutes to talk to someone to get things off your chest and mm. to uh, look at things a different way i've had a number of breakthrough moments over the last eight months that have shocked me 
from just the way they phrase things to talking to them for 50 minutes. So mm. it's great to see that. Um, and I'm going to touch on the end something about your thing, Tribe, but it's great to see that there's more people talking about it. Yeah, well, I think the funny thing with me is I set up a business and a charity with my therapist, and that is the joke that Brian O'Mahony, who's my co-founder and everything I've done, best friend in college, was in the same school as him. Um, he's been a rock and probably the catalyst of pretty much everything I've done and everything I've done well. So I um, I, I keep it close to home and I, in reference to my therapist, which is himself. You um, you referenced the being kind to friends. You attribute, you you gave Brezzy a tip of the hat, but you spent two years working on hospitality, a waiter and a bartender. And mm. Many guests who have spoken to say that they think people should serve a stint in hospitality. Um, like in Israel, if you're from Israel, you have to do a stint in, in the army. In Ireland, <laughs> some people think you should do a stint in hospitality. Mm. Um, what life skills or lessons do you think you learned from your time there that you've continued to carry with you to this day? I couldn't agree more with the statement that someone, everyone should do a stint in hospitality, particularly if you've come from private education, uh, which I did, um, very privileged um, upbringing. And a big thing was throwing yourself into the other side of what it's like. You know, a lot of people I would have gone to school with, a lot of my friends, um, you're grown up with effect, a, a good bit of a silver spoon in your mouth. Um, and you don't, in, in order to solve business challenges or to um, understand how to create a solution, a startup, whatever it might be, you have to have incredible awareness um, of things that are going on and, and an, an ability to put yourself in other people's shoes. I think that's a very common thing. And what, what I found from hospitality was not only the incredibly hard work. Um, I worked in the Marion Hotel, which is a five-star bar. I worked in the Cellar Bar. And then I moved across to the Bailey um, and they are known, <laughs> this isn't, this is pretty much every hospitality uh, industry, but understaff and overwork, you know, like that's pretty much the culture of it. And um, so going in at 18 and just having to work your ass off in, uh, and deal with, in a five-star hotel, arguably some of the worst people that you're ever going to deal with. Um, no care for you, uh, for a lot of them, and a lot of amazing people, of course, but the ability to bite your tongue at the right times um, to know that things, even if you were in the right and they were in the wrong, that you just have to put up with. And the ability to work with people from completely different backgrounds. Um, there was very few Irish people in any of the bars that I worked in. And it just, it accelerated my maturity. And it, I grew patience. And I think my ability to communicate with people went through the roof. And mm -hmm. um, I've never had a problem talking as I'm sure you'll hear now today, uh, but one thing that I probably wouldn't have been as good at is listening. Um, and my communication skills by working in the hospitality environment under high pressure have, I would say, carried across immeasurably in my pitching now. And I do so much pitching of our product and client calls and high pressure Q&As, whether it be raising funding or whatever it might be. And I've gotten so good under pressure because of those scenarios. Um, and again, kind of carrying across those skills. So loved my time there great fun was hung over a lot of the time like it was great crack but at the same time um when you're 18 or 19 after going through a pretty soft cushy teenage years in relative to a lot of other countries and upbringings um i thought it was amazing for my next series of questions i'll need the audience to understand what bounce insights is rather than yeah. me making an attempt at you being the co-founder why don't you take the the mic for the next 30 seconds yeah, of course. So Bounce Insights is a research technology company 
we build market research technology for brands across Ireland, the UK, Europe, and hopefully now soon the United States. Um, what we do differently is we take a consumer first approach. We build mobile apps and the technology necessary for brands to connect with consumers. What that effectively means is that market researchers um, are very top down. They are understanding, okay, what's the best, me best methodology? How are we going to carry out this research? And they completely neglect the person that participates in it. So what we've done is we create the experience and the technology um, from a consumer standpoint and sell that to brands so that they can have their own audience and carry out research themselves using our technology. Where that started was we built a market research platform here in Ireland. Um, we built an app, brought 10,000 people onto it, and sold to the likes of Coca-Cola, Diageo, Tesco, Glanvia. And we learned all of every good and bad thing about market research, took those learnings, white labeled the technology, and then we sell that internationally. And wow. I suppose if you take one thing away from what we do best, and we talk about the experience of the respondent, is that the completion rate of any given survey internationally is between two and 6%. Mm -hmm. You send out 100 emails, you'll get two or six people replying. And uh, for the last year and a half, we've maintained an 86% completion rate. That is, if we send out 100 notifications via mobile app, we can get 860 people responding. So uh, that's all I say. And people are quite keen to figure out how they can do that themselves. The, there were some stats on your website around the market research industry. And it said that in, I'm reading from my screen here. In 1997, the average response rate was 36%. Far below what you're achieving in 1997. 2003 was 25 2014 was nine, and now you're saying it's the stat said it was below two percent. Yeah. Um. What do you think is contributing to a such low response rate in these? I'm going to call them traditional surveys. Perfect. I'll, I'll use it um by just giving an example of how it works, mm. and I think everyone will be able to understand why no one would ever do this. And it's where the idea generation came from. Banks was this idea that we were trying to carry out research on an old startup, and then. I looked at the solutions and I was like, wait a second, no one would participate. So how are the brands doing this? And if you look at it in a very simple scenario, still to this day, the way that research is traditionally carried out is a person, me, male, 23, very short attention span. I am going through Instagram. I'm seeing five, six, seven kind of endorphin hits every six, seven seconds. I get an email invitation to participate in a 20 to 25 minute survey. Terrible experience. And at the end, the carrot is you'll be entered into a competition for a one-for-all voucher. Mm. So let's look at what the, the user experience that we have demanded and are used to as consumers. And it's, you know, it is people competing for milliseconds of attention. It is demanding a perfect, flawless experience. Um, if you look at why you would download an app or do anything, there has to be an instant gratification. So I need to get from A to B. I download the Uber app, I get in the Uber, I get to point B and I go, hmm, that is why I have this app, I'll keep it. With survey panels, it's the complete opposite. They try and beat you for as long as they can and they don't give you an incentive. So there was a lot of consumer psychology involved in, okay, how do we get a 23-year-old male to give five minutes of his day every second day towards research? And it all came down to the consumer psychology. We had to get it as close to what they were used to as possible. It had to be non-intrusive. It had to fit into their schedules. And this was something that researchers, instead of uh, kind of taking a step back and understanding why aren't respondents replying, they tried to solve it from a top down. They go, no, we need to change the surveys. We need to 
you know, it's, it's the user's fault. It's the user's fault. And instead, we kind of took our lack of industry experience and our ignorance and used it to our advantage and said, okay, well, we've no predefined way in which this should be done. Let's just strip it back, break it into every part of it and A, B test what works and what doesn't. And then that's basically how we got to that solution. Well, there's two things, sorry, there's four things you've identified that respondents hate about taking online surveys. Two of them are uh, email invitations and survey quality. Focusing on the latter, survey quality, how do you guys plan on tackling that or making that experience better? Yeah, so it's one of the tricky things that we're facing now as we build kind of white label technology or branded technology for other companies is we lose control of two things. The content, which is the surveys themselves, and the incentives, how much the client is willing to pay them. They're two very big parts of engaging an audience. And this kind of feeds into the clients we're going after. Because if you look at the survey quality point of view, uh, if you're dealing with a research agency, and we initially thought we would sell our technologies to research agencies, they control the content, but they're basically like, no, we do 20-minute surveys. We don't change. We don't budge. This is how we do research. It's our methodology. So thus, you can have the sexiest technology in the world. No one's going to do 20 minutes. Well, then our technology is fairly useless. The approach we've taken to dictating control over the survey quality, the design, is through proof. Uh, instead of going to research agencies, we've gone to brands directly. And we've said, would you put this 20-minute survey in front of your loyal consumer? They go, no, 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 geez, we wouldn't do that. You know, they would hate the brand as soon as they found out it was us. So we're trying to carry across that ideology. If you care about your consumers and they're your most important uh, opinion on new products, marketing, communications, techniques, you have to treat them with care. And that's more and more brands are pulling research in-house because of this. And if that's the case, we show them A and B. We go, this is a 20-minute survey versus a five-minute native app experience survey. This is the net promoter score, the enjoyment, the engagement, the experience, the incentive. And this is what you used to do and if you prove to them that their consumers prefer option b the sell becomes so much easier so that was a big kind of i suppose route to market change that we've taken is that the research companies are way too slow to react and mm -hmm. um, so instead of trying to you know provide them with a technology that will make their lives way easier they're not willing to budge and um, because they benefit from complexity they remain relevant by convincing brands that they need them in order to do the perfect research. Mm -hmm. But the way that we put it is, is would you prefer 90% certainty over data in 24 hours or 95% certainty over data in four weeks? And I think every brand would choose the 90% in 24 hours. Yep. So we kind of sacrifice, look, we're not going to predict the next election, but we will tell you with certain confidence whether you should go with option A or option B or this product or this name or this color, whatever research they're doing. And very long answer, but the survey quality piece is something that we scratched our heads on for so long because when you lose that control or how can you maintain control of that and you do it through proof, prove and show them this is the actual tangible impact if you change the content you're pushing out. And that is right down to design experience incentive. Your go-to-market approach is um, for for five years ago, you were 18, your go-to-market approach for anyone is is remarkable. Um, but not only that, you last month, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with this last month, you celebrated one year since you lost Bounce Insights. 
You've had over 35,000 user downloads on the app, 67 clients at this particular time last month, 86% revenue growth from Q1 to Q2 in 2021. So the question I have for you is, what are some of the biggest lessons or challenges you've learned over the last 12 months since you started Bounce Insights? So 12 months ago, to paint a picture of where we were, um, I was in Pioneer College and uh, I just finished college. So I was in University in Trinity. And that March of 2020, uh, I was 10 weeks left on my thesis, 10 weeks left before my final exams. Um, and we, were, we had launched Bounce. We tried to get Bounce live. We hadn't launched the platform yet. And basically COVID hit and everything fell apart. Uh, mm. Everything moved online. I had to try and like the whole college experience being shifted off. We basically lost all access to revenue from Bounce's point of view. Um, and funding was going to be incredibly hard to try and secure. And our goal was, okay, when I finished college and from June 1st, uh, which was just over a year ago, um, we need to have funding in place so that we can have a crack at this. Um, so some of the key things that I've learned from finishing university, trying to close that funding round and then get a business off the ground, which ultimately needed a lot of work. The business, the, our original idea has changed so much from what it was in the beginning. Um, and I, I kind of championed the Ray Dalio's thing of strong opinions weekly held because I was the person who was getting in front of as many people as I could, pitching the idea, letting them rip it apart, going back to Brian and Ronan, rebuild, go again, go again. And that was basically the first six months of that journey was have a hypothesis, test it, get feedback, build again. And it's obviously the build, measure, learn philosophy. And it's kind of what you think you learn. And it's like, oh, that's not really much in practice. But the biggest thing I've learned is speed to decision. And um, you can kind of rest on your laurels quite a lot in business and go, oh, no, I think we're right here. Let's just keep building towards it. But I, the more I pitched it to people, the better we got. So I just saw that as kind of a, the speed I can make to every decision, whether it's a change in feature or change in target client to change in pitch and was probably our biggest asset in moving quickly because a month in our eyes was like six months in a normal business is like we were trying to move so quickly and one of the most challenging parts before we really saw any traction like july august september october we pretty much no revenue and i was pitching to four or five brands a week and pretty much the same product as what we have now and i couldn't understand why they weren't buying it so instead in October, I changed from pitching to learning and I did loads of customer discovery. October, November, December, I met with all the same brands and I just asked them, how are you currently doing research? What is your biggest pain? How, like, if there was anything in the world that could change about this, what would it be? Mm. And without changing any technology, I took all that feedback and we just altered our proposition. Um, I'm not going to go into the minutiae of the, the changes we made, but without changing a single line of code, we went from zero euro per month to 26,000 euro in January wow. to the same clients, no change in tech. All I did was, was I altered my pitch. I changed how I presented the proposition. I changed the value prop that we were offering and I changed the way in which I articulated it up. So instead of presuming that we were right, I just took the assumption that we were wrong and were like, let them like the people who were going to be using this product day in, day out, what were the problems they were having? Um, and that's something that in terms of the mo what I've learned to date, because now as we're trying to scale internationally for the last two or three months, I've done the exact same approach. I haven't tried to sell anything. I've met with the big brands in the UK. I've met with leading research experts in the US. And I just said, what's the biggest pain in the ass in the industry right now? Why doesn't mobile work? Why aren't people moving towards apps? Why, what are brands currently using? And I, you just store this 
immense amount of volume and they have no reason to lie. If I was selling to them, they did. They'd be like, oh, young person building a startup, let's massage his ego, let's pat him on the back. But I wasn't trying to sell to them. So they were giving really upfront, incredible uh, insight that people would pay hundreds of euro for a ticket to like a research seminar for. But I was just gathering all that information and what our team is best at, myself, Ronan and Brian, is getting into a room, digesting, discussing and deciding based on that information. So that's basically our process to every decision we make now is, is that kind of customer discovery, learn and go. And that's definitely the biggest thing that I've learned over the last year is approach to decision-making and the quicker you can get there and the quicker you can fall or succeed in the smaller details is what will get you to success. Remarkable. You, at the very beginning, you touched on the time towards the end of your thesis. And I know that from a previous podcast, you juggled a lot. Uh, it was your final year in college, you had a thesis to complete around the funding, launched a charity, still hung out with your mates and you've got a girlfriend as well. So time management is something that you've got to nail. How yeah. did you juggle everything? Was there any, like, did you use your calendar religiously? Mm. Yeah, I think you hear people talk about what your superpower is or like, you know, and then like just being kind of narrowing in on that and, and using that to your advantage. And I think time management um, is definitely my superpower in terms of, being hyper-productive in very short burst periods of time. Because in that period, as you said, I was trying to run Tribe, which was a non-profit and something I cared deeply about. Um, we were trying to raise our funding round for Bounce and prove to Enterprise Ireland that we could still match their 250K, that we could get the investors on board. Um, and I was going for the gold medal in Trinity. I really wanted to get top of my class. Um, and I remember there was a, a funny thing with my dad talking about my role model uh, back in... September previously, if we're to wind back, I tried to drop out. Um, I got this kind of head full of steam that I'd learned enough in university and Bounce was, we had finished the accelerator program and we thought, okay, we're going to raise funding now. There's no way I can do college and a startup. Um, I need to put all my eggs in this basket and have a crack. And my parents pulled me in and my dad basically said, um, I have four kids, uh, a wife and three businesses. And I went through one of the biggest recessions that the country has ever seen. And I managed to do all, all of those things. You pay for none of your food. You live in our house. You are going to a university where you've like eight hours a week. And yes, you'll have to do a lot of study. You'll be fucking fine. And it was that kind of like smackdown to reality whereby pressure it like forced me to be incredibly good with my time. And as you said, I had a, a girlfriend. I had amazing friends. So what happened from for the last three and a half years, four years, in my notes every day, every minute of my day is planned. Um, whether it's <laughs> go grab a chicken fillet roll and a coffee with one of my friends or whatever it is, I in my notes from 7 a.m. to whatever, 10 p.m. in my day is planned, both social and downtime work. And the way I needed to do that because I had college work, bounce work, tribe work, and social life. And I, the only way that I could achieve that without losing my mind was through that controlling of the controllables and it's a mental health value and principle that I uphold religiously because it's the only thing that keeps me sane um, is kind of that control piece and perhaps it's a um, it can be a bit neurotic at times it's definitely not a you know perfect thing but it was how I got through that period and suddenly I graduated I got the gold medal 
we raised our funding rounds, we launched the company and Tribe hit the goals that we, we wanted it to do. And I think if you ask people what gives me the confidence or like, oh, sure, you're taking these big risks. What gives people confidence is like those previous successes. I've, I've known that I've done it in the past. So why can't I do it again in the future? And you kind of just build towards that resilience of keeping going. And it's been incredibly important for me. Um, but easily the most challenging time in my life, mentally, physically. Um, and I feel like I can have a crack at most things now because of that. One of the things that, that I do every night before before I go to bed is I write down my my to-do list the next day. So yeah, I just, exactly. when I wake up, I, I it's prioritized and I just have to tackle that. And then if I can get through that, I know I've, 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 know I've done a good day, but it makes exactly. it easier rather than coming in and spending going, what am I working on today? And then time flies by. Hmm. You you mentioned the US. Is there a plan to relocate there in the future? If I could. And I, I would love to. I only had the conversation this week about setting a date for when I'm going to move. And whether it's London or New York, and they were our two goals. And we set a so this again is how I kind of approach goals. If I view moving bounce or moving me internationally to a place, London or New York, there's a set of prerequisites in order to make that decision. We have to have a certain amount of pipeline clients in that market. We have to have maybe, excuse me, a certain amount of revenue, a certain amount of funding, a certain amount of people on the team. The Irish product has to be self-sufficient, all that sort of stuff. So what I've done this week is I've set my goals for the 1st of January as to what I need to hit in order to execute on a move like that. And um, there's a few things in the choice between the markets. Um, the UK is, is about five years behind the US. Um, there are pros and cons of going after both market. We're potentially, at the moment, we're at the point where we're going to see where the market pulls us, ultimately, because there's a few pros and cons. The, the US, way more competitive in the space that we're in. The competitors that we would have over there are way more advanced, uh, way more funding, um, but way more opportunity. You know, There's way more market to go after. And it definitely is exciting. We have a lot of advisors over there that try to you know, get us to come over. We have a few pipeline clients, which if landed would very much justify a move over. And we have the same in the UK. And the decision that we're trying to make at the moment is do we go as a, an early mover in the UK and kind of a real thought leader and like drive the technology change and be in kind of the people making waves in the United Kingdom and even Europe because it's slower there? Or do we join the party in the United States basically? Um, it's a tricky decision. We haven't made our decision. Um, we have an amazing advisory board that are assisting us. Um, but in terms of me moving and where I would like to move, my heart's with the US. My brother lives in New York. He's leaving soon. But I've always wanted to live in New York. And I felt when I turned down the grad visa to go to New York and I turned down my J1 because of Bounce, I always thought that I'll have a day where I'll get to New York with Bounce. And that will be a real kind of personal achievement that with the company that we've built, I'm now there with them. So I won't let my biases take me there, but currently it's up in the air, which, which one we'll go after, but it's hard to ignore the allure of, uh, of New York. That it is, that it is. I've only got a few questions left for you. One of them is, if you were the final decision-making, if you had decision-making power to choose one mandatory subject for secondary school, high school for our American listeners, what would it be? And it's not on the curriculum at the moment. What would it be and why? Uh, emotional well-being. Um, because I think it, it controls so much of your success as a person. And one thing that I think a lot of people have horribly wrong, and I think I had wrong up until maybe two years ago, was how we define success um, as people. Um, 
a, a definition of success was so narrow in my mind when I was younger. Um, whereas now that I have a greater knowledge of my emotional well-being and I have a greater emotional intelligence, I know that my definition of success expands past getting a gold medal in Trinity. Gold medal in Trinity was like such an, like a thing that I had in my head, but ultimately the happiness that it brought me was like nowhere close to the happiness that the process of building bounces brought. Mm-hmm. And the moment I changed my mindset from a pursuit of happiness to a happiness of pursuit, which was in Adam Grant's book, Originals, and um, that completely flipped my mindset in that this idea of um, I'm going to be happy when is a terrible mindset. And it's something that's taught when we're in secondary school a knowledge and understanding of your own emotional well-being, what makes you happy, what makes you tick, what keeps your top six inches at its most focused, at its best, comes from an understanding of your own mental health and your own personal side of things. And I just think as teenagers, particularly men, because we mature later, we have such a poor understanding of mental health and using mindfulness and your mental health as um, as a way to grow as a person and to use that in your business through focus, really good work, being going to areas where I'm focusing on things that you're really good at comes from that understanding. So I think having a greater aptitude with, in terms of your mental health and emotional well-being is essential in secondary school. And if I'd had it earlier, I think I'd, I'd have even more success than I, I, I'm doing at the moment because it just took me so long to understand it and learn it myself because I had an interest. You're the co-founder of Tribe Charity. Now's probably a great time to take couple of seconds to explain to people what that is and i'll leave a link below to previous podcasts where you've talked more about it yeah of course i appreciate you and um, you making reference to this um, and it, it's something that has been core to i want to do it for the rest of my life in whatever capacity i think if mm-hmm. i if if i if money was no object what would i do every day i would i will eventually get into the space of mental health and mental well-being and applying that to business and every part of your life i just i'm really interested in it in general and um, tribe came from my own battles with mental health when i was in school i did really i was obsessed with sport really bad physical injury took me away from everything that i enjoyed had no understanding of my own mental health fell into a pretty dark hole and had the talk from brezzy really enlightened me about understanding my mental health went to university met brian who's my co-founder in tribe and bounce and we started opening up to each other and it was at that point that we we realized that we must have been two of tens of thousands of people in ireland that felt the same but spoke about nothing um and it, it i did one podcast about it and i had hundreds and hundreds of people messaging me oh my god i'm the same my brother's the same my sister's the same and instead of feeling this great sense of pride i felt an immense frustration like, how could we possibly live in a world that was like that? And I didn't know how to attack that problem. I didn't know. There was no way I could solve it globally. I was like, how do I go about this? So, and because people are so reluctant to see therapists at the time anyway, um, what I decided was, okay, let's just do this in our social circle. So myself and Brian set up a community, which was tribe of people that the only goal was to bring people together to educate, grow the awareness and raise money for mental health charities in Ireland. And how we did that was through displaying vulnerability and hoping that it acted as a catalyst through in other social circles. And I did that by speaking about it really publicly, putting myself out there, allowing other people in other social groups to do the same and be that one good friend in your group. And it reverberated and we ended up growing this community, raising over now 150,000 euro for both Pieta House and Jigsaw Ireland. And it's a very just open community and a local effort really through fundraisers and content and education. 
to try and have a very local effort at, at solving a problem that I felt very personally when I was younger. Um, and I, in terms of the future of it, um, it's voluntary based led. Uh, we have multiple team members working on it. Uh, we're a partner of Jigsaw and our next big focus is working on a mental health educational program for third level universities. Um, because we feel that that is a, a time in your life where a lot of people move away from home. They're introduced to drugs, drink, relationships, mm -hmm. a lot of really challenging things on your mental health. And people lack the early intervention tools to deal with it themselves or with their friends. So that's our kind of next big goal is to work with Jigsaw um, on creating that and hopefully implementing it. There's a guy called Christopher Shum down in Cork uh, owns or is the MD of Motus Learning. Uh, probably one of the most intelligent people I've ever had on this podcast. You should definitely check him out because he seems to be edging into that space. I absolutely, I, I will. Um, I might ask you for an introduction. That'd be great. Yeah, no, no worries. Uh, final question is, if you're going to write a book, what would it be titled? Uh, the Happiness of Pursuit, I think. Um, it's I love that. that. When you said that, the, instead of the pursuit of happiness, the happiness of pursuit, I said, I've got to get that on a picture frame somewhere. Yeah, I know. And it sounds sappy. And, but it, it's funny how a line in a book can alter your, your mental state. Um, I had such a destination mindset. I'll be happy when bounce gets acquired. I'll be happy when we launch this program. I'll be happy when, I'll be happy when, I'll be happy when. And it's such a destructive mindset to have because the I am such a person because I was hyperactive and I was so bad at being in the present, so bad at it. And as I've grown over the last year or two with Bounce, I almost don't want it to end because I'm enjoying the process so much. Um, and I think that's it's dictated now what I find valuable in my life and that definition of success. So um, it's made me a happier person. And I think... And um, that would be the title. Charlie, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Thanks for being my guest. Thanks a million. Appreciate it.